everybody wants to make work that is layered and complex and that people can access at many different levels that gives people a lot to think about that kind of change your the way of, you know you kind of see the world you think about not only the painting but the, the environment around you and the other thing that that i think is important about the work the reflective aspect it really activates you as a viewer so that like there are certain moments of the painting that you can't really access unless you move to one side or the other unless you get closer you get further away color will shift, something will appear to fall into shadow while a reflection shimmers in another corner and then you kind of move around it. Intentionally, I'm using these reflections to move the body around. And I think about it a lot like in music, if you're, you know, you start tapping your toe to a bass line, you know, that's where like music is moving your body. And like, I'm trying to make paintings that move your body the same way. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 295th episode, I'm excited to be joined by Curtis Anthony Bosif, who I recently spoke with about his solo exhibition, In the Midst of a Great Fall, that's currently up on view at Oliva Gallery in Chicago through October 7th, so there's still time to check it out. Of course, we talk all about the exhibition, as well as his background, his interest in art, how that grew through various studying, how that took on various forms through different types of painting, different types of work, how research and conceptual ideas about the work started to inform what he was painting, and especially thinking about the processes involved in creating these really beautiful works that really pull you in. Once again, super excited to share this interview. His website is curtisanthonybosif.com, and of course, be sure to follow him on Instagram as well. If you're new to Studio Break, we're a podcast where we feature all these different artists that come on, they discuss their work, they share their backgrounds. In the last year, we opened a gallery out in West Chicago, so we've been featuring shows, super exciting stuff. If you want to check out any of that, go to studiobreak.com. We've got a big archive of episodes. They're great for studio listening and thinking, so definitely check them out. We've featured tons of great artists, so super exciting stuff. Be sure to follow in social media. So like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter slash X at Studio Break. And of course, best place to find us on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. Another easy way to stay up to date is to subscribe to our newsletter on studiobreak.com. We highlight recent podcasts, upcoming art shows at our gallery in West Chicago, and of course, competitions, opportunities for artists to share their work, to be part of the podcast, and of course, to be curated into a show. I'm excited to note that our 2023 professional competition opens October 1st. Our juror this year is Jeff Stevenson, who is a curator and gallery director at Governor State University. He's also a mixed media artist, and he'll be selecting five artists to appear on the podcast as well as artists for solo exhibitions group exhibitions if you want to find out how to apply head on over to studiobreak.com there'll be some information there the application process is super easy you submit a small fee you send an email off with your information links to your portfolio and website and you are done so if you're interested in being part of the podcast or being part of a show get those apps in we do have a closing for Noah Kashiani's exhibition, Built Similarly, Saturday, October 7th from 5 to 8 p.m., so come on out if you have not seen the show. I'm also excited to announce that the following week, Mark Mitchell's exhibition, Pale Hay, will open Saturday, October 14th from 6 to 9 p.m. Mark is a painter and a curator from the University of Arkansas, Fayetteville. Super excited to have him here. It's going to be a fantastic show. And with announcements out of the way, let's dive right into this interview with Curtis Anthony Bo. 
explosive. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Curtis Anthony Bosif. Thank you. It's good to be here. We recently met up at your solo exhibition, In the Midst of a Great Fall, at Oliva Gallery that runs through October 7th. You're going to be showing here with Shona McDonald in spring of 25. And so we were just chatting so much about your paintings at the opening that I figured, let's just let's just go deep. So thanks again for doing this tonight. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. And so, you know, we were talking a little about this before, maybe at the opening, but remind me again, you're from like the St. Louis areas that where you kind of just grew up and got interested in, in everything and art related. And yeah, I, I grew up in St. Louis and then um, spent uh, three years in Kansas City getting my BFA at the Kansas City Art Institute. And then um, two years at Northwestern University. I think I moved to Chicago in uh, 2006 and I've been here ever since. Nice, nice. And so, you know, I'm always interested in kind of like learning these ins and outs of education and, and background. Were you always kind of like making stuff, uh, drawing stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I was, I kind of always knew that I was going to do something in the arts. It's like one of those kind of memories you don't know when it happened, where it came from. I just always knew I was going to be some kind of an artist. People would ask my dad, you know, like, how long has your son been an artist? And he says, since he could hold a crayon. And mm -hmm. yeah, it was just, I never had to think about that question. Kids get asked in school, what are you going to be when you grow up? It was just, I always knew. Yeah. Well, so it's an easy decision, I guess, right? <laughs> it was hardly, a, it wasn't really even a decision. It's one of those things that you just, it just like kind of billows out from inside you. And yeah. Just something I'm going to do. Yeah. Well, and you know, kind of given your artistic experience now, like what kind of early experiences did you have? Were you like kind of just drawing in your bedroom? Were you, you know, taking classes in school? And I know that varies a lot. I think there was somebody that interviewed that they had this insane glass shop that was totally not legit and above board. So people might like melt their faces off, but did you have access to, to making stuff and doing stuff? I mean, it was very simple. I, you know, I just had lots of, uh, you know, drawing pads, you know, notebooks, just kind of anything I could draw on. There was a neighborhood friend who was an an illustrator for like newspapers and magazines back before there were computers. You know, he would just do this all by hand. And he would sometimes give me big rolls of paper, you know, like these, there'd be like hundreds of feet of paper and I'd roll those out on the floor in the basement. So there'd be like these seven foot long drawings and I'd make these huge like war scenes or <laughs> like like underwater scenes where I had like lots of detail, all sorts of like fish everywhere overlapping and stuff like this. And yeah, and my parents were great. They were very um, encouraging. I think I was saying to you off mic at one point, I exhibited such talent at such a young age that I think it was clear to my mom that there was something, you know, in her words, you know, there was something special about me. One of the earliest memories I have like in preschool or kindergarten where my mom brought a drawing that I had made and showed it to the like middle school art teacher in the school I was at. And I remember them like going, like looking very closely at how I had like drawn the fingers of a hand kind of curling around the handle of like a coffee mug with like great detail. And they were just really impressed that, you know, like this kid, you know, who, I don't know what I was like five or something was like, Oh my God. You know, and so I kind of like grew up with this idea, you know, it's probably really messed me up mentally, but <laughs> that I was like, 
I had talent and that I needed to pursue it. And, you know, my mom, you know, calls it a God-given talent. And, you know, like it's always pressured me to really capitalize on that. Sure. Sure. And then, so like, you know, going through school, then how did you start learning about like, I guess how people become artists to start, you know, eventually, you know, going undergraduate? <laughs> yeah, or, or, I mean, you know, getting that associate's degree, I think is what you were saying. You, you've taken some classes and whatnot, but it's an interesting thing to think about, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. Like I did not grow up in an artistic family, uh, you know, like my dad drove a forklift, you know, my mom had had various kind of jobs here and there. Yeah. I mean, we were just like a very working class family and there was no, there's no like handbook that you get on like how to be an artist. And I think that honestly it's like watching bob ross on like pbs was the i guess the first kind of exposure i had to a professional kind of working artist and and um and it sounds ridiculous to say out loud i never really thought about it but yeah that that would be it and then i know my my mom had these norman rockwell like Mm -hmm. books kind of just like sitting around and i would like kind of draw from those and we would go to the library a lot when I was a kid and, and I would immediately kind of go to the like seventh through ninth grade books and find all the like science and like history books with all these awesome illustrations. And I'd really kind of study those. And I, you know, I was really into like, um, you know, like air force fighter jets and historic fighter bombers and, and, um, ships like big tall ships with, uh, like sailing ships from like the, you know, in the 19th, the 18th century, I draw those all the time. And that became a way to kind of feed my interest in history and science. And, you know, like, so for me, I think I mentioned this, I know I'm getting off topic, but the, you know, like art has always been a way for me to kind of like know the world. And I think that was kind of established for me very young where my interest in these topics led to drawing. And then like by drawing these these things I was interested in, it kind of like led back into, well, like, what does that do? And like, what is this for? And where'd that come from? And all these questions. And again, like I said, there's, there's no like guidebook. And I think in high school, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was kind of a cynical teenager, kind of rebellious, playing a lot of music and bands and stuff, and kind of maybe not focusing on art as much as I should have been. I took like a, just a drawing one course in a community college right at like the summer after my graduation from high school. And I entered thinking I was going to do photography because I just like got a camera that year and I was kind of, that was the new thing I was interested in. And I'm like drawing and it was clear that like I was way better than everyone else in the class at like, just like rendering. Mm-hmm. And the teacher kind of came over and asked, like, what are you, what's your major, your photography? And I said, yeah. And he said, no way, you're a fine art major. I'm going to turn you into a, a fine art, fine artist. And um, he was right. And so I kind of like, I just, I kept realizing, like, I was, I was really good at what I was doing and kind of switched to doing painting and drawing. And I never did get my associate's degree, though. I, I just got a, a couple courses. And then after two years, transferred to the Kansas City Art Institute and because I did the two years at Florissant Valley Community College in St. Louis, I just had to do three years in Kansas City. And I'm assuming, though, that that first chunk of you know, being in those art classes after kind of being in a drought where you were before, you must have just been like super, super motivated. Uh, the one that shows up early and stays late kind of student. I don't know if I'd say I showed up early, stayed late. <laughs> Again, I excelled at what I was doing, and it was really easy for me. 
But those first couple of years, you know, at a community college, you're not really making art, you know, you're just like learning facility, you're figuring out how to render and, and, and things like that. You're learning art history and just like basic kind of concepts of like 2D design. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, at home, I was kind of playing around with like, how do you translate, you know, ideas you have about the world mm-hmm. to, you know, an art form that can communicate something different, something deeper to people. And obviously I made a lot of bad art, <laughs> sure, sure. but, but, you know, I, I, uh, I figured out some things and made, and had, you know, was able to put together a good enough portfolio that, you know, I, I got into Kansas city with some scholarships and, and, you know, that's where the real kind of growth happened for sure. What was that, you know, initial experience like, cause you're maybe surrounded by some, you know, folks get in there their associates, maybe they're not really sure what they're doing or where they're going to transfer to. I'm assuming, you know, there you're just surrounded by a bunch of folks that are hungry and, you know, a little, little competitive and, you know, want to top each other. I'm assuming that was a good environment. Uh, I mean, I want to say yes to, to both <laughs> of those questions that at, at Flow Valley, I mean, honestly, I'm not just making this up. They, they have a really strong art program for a community mm-hmm. college. They're one of the few community college art programs that's been accredited by the, the College Art Association or whatever it's called. And, mm-hmm. and so it was rigorous and they were really talented, you know, professors. And there was some competition there among some students. There were a few people there that I can remember to this day that, you know, there was friendly competition for sure. But no doubt Kansas City was a, a totally different world because if you, if you transfer in, you skip all the foundation nonsense which I was so happy to not have to do that kind of crap. But I went straight into just a a painting program and that, you know, and you're there with a bunch of sophomores who did go through foundations and they're, you know, they know each other, they know the professors, but I was in a good group that had a number of other transfer students similar to myself that were, you know, two or three years older than everybody and a little more mature. And yeah, I mean, it was that first semester was very stressful and, you know, I think it was the first time I noticed I was like losing hair. I'd like wake up in, <laughs> in the morning with like, hair all over my pillow. And it's a, it's a traumatic, you know, that first year was just crazy. You're living away for the first time with a roommate in a dorm room and everything is new. You're exposed to like, so many different things, not just art, but like music and food and just like ideas, film. Yeah, it was very, uh, very formative time in my life for sure. Was there kind of like a trajectory then, an arc that you were kind of kind of like then pursue painting now that when I was in Kansas City that first year, I, I thought of myself as a as a visual artist. In terms of materials and, and approaches and stuff like that, as you're, you know, kind of jumping past some of those foundational courses, you know, were there mediums and things like that were that you were learning about and, and exploring that you hadn't before, like oil paint, or was it something where you'd already kind of had some of those experiences previously? Yeah, uh, I I had experience with oil paint for sure. Um, and even in grade school, we do, you know, like oil painting classes and stuff like that. And there'd be like a special, you know, you could sign up for an after school program and do oil painting with our teacher. And so I was familiar with that. And, you know, really, even in Kansas City, where I could have taken courses in like sculpture and glass, you know, even web design, fibers. I really was kind of arrogant and was said, no, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket. I'm going to focus on two-dimensional, like visual art, you know, drawing and painting and art history. That's what I want to do. I'm invested in, in visuality and like the image and surface, that kind of a thing. And I, you know, I probably wouldn't express it that way <laughs> 20 years ago, but 
you know, that was, I was, I was really kind of arrogant. Um, and I know I can hear my mom in, in my, in the back of my head saying like, take a course in web design. It'll be useful <laughs> for you. You know, take a course in graphic design. It'll pay the bills. And I was like, no, I, I want to, I want to take this course on postmodern theory, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> sure. Well, and obviously too. So it sounds like there's a lot of like technical things that you had already kind of got under your belt. So were there artists and ways of working and thinking and, you know, thinking critically, especially that kind of started to inform the things that you were interested in and kind of elevate it from where you were, you know, maybe thinking about it, you know, a couple of years prior? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'm trying to think of like, like artist heroes that I had mm -hmm. in that transitional phase from like a community college to a more serious kind of BFA program. And, <laughs> you know, like... In St. Louis, there's they have a terrific, terrific museums in St. Louis, and they're all free. And um, I used to go there all the time. And and it sounds cliche, but you know, like I was really attracted to just like big abstract painting. And so I gravitated to the Rothko at the St. Louis Art Museum and the Pollock. And another important artist for me was Richard Serra. And there's some terrific Richard Serra sculptures at the St. Louis Art Museum and at the Pulitzer Foundation. And um, I just spent a lot of time with those things. And I'm trying to think of some other ones. Giacometti was a thing. You know, I had a phase where I was really into Giacometti, Paul Clay, you know, I, Agnes Martin. And I mean, all of these just big abstract paintings are just kind of like really interested in that kind of thing. And so how did that show up in the work in, in terms of like this change, this shift in terms of abstraction? Were you making, you know, 100 foot works like you did when you were like five, when you had that roll of paper and you're just kind of making these big abstractions and things like that? Well, before when I was at community college, I started making really bad Pollocks. And I thought by basically using like like fluorescent green and like hot pink, it would be different, you know, mm -hmm. that I was doing something really original. Um <laughs> So I like really experimented with this kind of, you know, the Pollock drip technique. And, you know, I read a lot of existential philosophy in high school and, you know, Giacometti's, he always gets kind of lumped in with the existentialists. And so I was kind of ripping off Giacometti and trying to combine it with Modrian and Pollock and smashing them together. It just like, it was just horrible. But, you know, I learned a lot. And was there like a, you know, a thesis or something that was like that concise ending to your experience there where you had to make a series of paintings? And if so, what were they about? Could you describe them a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I'm still talking about like my time in St. Louis, really. So my first semester in Kansas City, like I said, was very traumatic. It was like, you know, I think the professor there, the closest thing I have to a mentor at the time was, um, his name is Warren Rosser. He's since retired, but that first semester, he really puts everyone through their paces where there was a, this one assignment he gave everyone where we were drawing on the same piece of paper, the same thing for like a month and a half. And every time we, we completed a drawing, we'd have a critique and then he'd tell us to erase it and then do it again, like interpret the object one more time on that piece of paper. And over the course of like weeks, there's just like this huge, this very thick patina all this history gets built up on this piece of paper. And after, you know, like a month of doing that, the paper's got holes in it. <laughs> you know, there's like nothing going, it's really hard to think of it as a drawing anymore. But you start to see how the kind of repetition and like history and the kind of layers that will lead you to a way of abstraction, like a new way of like looking at the material, looking at the subject matter. And 
right before the holiday break, him and the other uh, teacher who taught the sophomore, the other sophomore course, they did this presentation. They're like, okay, when you come back in the spring, we're going to do this project. It's called like History, Memory, Society. Very vague. Just that basically, here's a, we want you to go home over the break. And they gave us like a list of like books to possibly read divided by like, this one's about culture. This one's about like art. This one's about philosophy. This is about science. And just find inspiration so that when you come back in the spring, it's going to be you and your studio exploring the ideas that you found, you know, that you started doing research on. And I came back and my subject was, was <laughs> death. Like <laughs> my family, you know, like I, unfortunately, you know, we, we suffered, you know, five kind of pretty major deaths within the course of a couple of years before I went to Kansas city. And so it was like really on my mind. And I spent, you know, that holiday break, just kind of like reading about like, just like how death is treated in different cultures historically spent time at like cemeteries, just like photographing gravestones. And then came back and then eventually, you know, I started making these, these repetitious process-based drawings where at the time I was, at the, I was just using ballpoint pen and I was just kind of like scribbling over a piece of masonite and just making these like, just kind of dense, you know, that kind of uncanny iridescent kind of purplish color that you get if you just like scribble a ballpoint pen over and over again especially you know if it's black and so I was, I was doing that and just making these just kind of kind of color field paintings with ballpoint pen but they were massive you know these things were like five feet square eight foot by four foot just all black ballpoint pen you know it take me a long time and so that was like i think the first serious abstract painting i started making and they were really just process-based drawings using ballpoint pen and slowly i started introducing the ruler and so what was once just a freehanded kind of scribble that just like built up surface to where you couldn't even see the marks it was just like black ballpoint pen i'd use this ruler to make these parallel lines and stack countless lines on top of each other and i'd do this on canvas and those became what i call the blue blue collar series kind of feeding off the kind of labor that went into this and the kind of higher authority that the ruler signified and and the doing that kind of process you'd get ballpoint pen ink on your hands and it would smear on the on the canvas in different areas it'd get on the ruler and as you'd move the ruler it'd kind of create these streaks up and down the canvas and so there's just all this kind of like patinaing and staining and but at the end you'd still get this kind of odd iridescent blackish purplish surface of ink and and they were just kind of weird uh you know kind of weird paintings and and that's like the real kind of first serious work that i made you know i started selling those paintings or drawings i think of them as paintings but they're really just drawings you know i sold a few of those and started doing another version where it was just a, i'd create a chalkboard it would be square and then i'd use treble points which is basically just a big compass and i make these perfect concentric circles that would start in the middle and go out to the four court you know the four edges of the square canvas and again, the, the concentric circles were like touching each other. So it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things. Yeah. So I had the, the ballpoint pen drawings and I had these kind of concentric circle pieces and started experimenting with kind of like space and sculptural installations. I made like a circle sidewalk on campus. You know, I did the thing where you like walk in, that was one piece. And then I did another piece where, you know, you walk in a circle on the grass countless hours until you kill the grass and you just have this like circle and I called it the thinking circle and 
So, you know, it's just really kind of playing around with space and repetition, process, space work. And so, you know, obviously we were talking about these these massive uh, ballpoint pen drawings and, and some of the work that was coming on there. Um, when did they start putting it in your ear that maybe you should go to graduate school and, and continue to, to do this and go further with it? I always thought I was going to teach art. I feel like that's what everybody thinks they're going to do. And <laughs> to do that you needed an mfa for me it was not a question of if it was just like and not even when like i was gonna go from my bfa study in kansas city straight into my mfa i didn't want to take a, a year off i had a lot of momentum i was having a lot of success at that point you know like i said i was selling paintings having shows and so immediately started applying to grad schools that last year at kansas city and was lucky enough to to get into everything i applied to all the schools and Chicago was kind of where I wanted to go. So I applied to all the schools in Chicago. And Northwestern was the only one that gave me money. And in fact, they they pay you to go to school there. You get a stipend. And it wasn't even a question. I, you know, like, <laughs> I, I couldn't afford any more student loan debt. So mm-hmm. I was happy to go to Northwestern. And they had a, a strong program. And so... You know, usually there's a, a process where they trash you, I think, at the start of like graduate programs. Did you experience that or was it like because I, I, I can imagine like, you know, the ambition of just making some massive paintings that are super laborious. I don't know. I can't imagine maybe what the opposite of that is, but maybe they're like, you should do performance or something. I don't, I don't know. I guess it's a performance in a way, really. Which... There's certainly, yeah, I mean, you're right. There's there's a performative aspect to this kind of labor-intensive, kind of repetitious work. But I had a, an interesting grad school experience. And I feel like there's like two ways to go into grad school. There's like, you go in and you've kind of already established the kind of work you're making. And you don't listen to anybody at all. You just keep making your work, no matter what the critique no matter the thoughts that are kind of thrown at you, no matter what you learn outside the studio, and then you graduate with your degree and you just keep on making the same work. And then there's other people (laughs) who like just blow up their studio and see those two years as an opportunity to really explore, change, you know, like be lost, make mistakes, you know, embrace the accident. And um, I did that. I kind of... I, you know, I kind of showed the work that I was making in Kansas City, the kind of big labor-intensive drawings, and I had some other kind of weird sculptures I was messing with, and that first critique did not go well, and people were very hostile to the work, and I don't know if that's just the professors being, a, you know, if that was a performance on their part where, yeah, they're supposed to make everyone feel really bad about themselves and their work, or they honestly felt that way. Nevertheless, I kind of, you know, stopped making that work and started doing just a lot of writing. So that next quarter, it's a quarter system in Northwestern. My winter quarter, I just did a lot of reading and a lot of writing and just kind of thinking a lot about like things that were important to me conceptually. And eventually that led me to doing work that in the spring quarter that was exploring my relationship to my father and the Vietnam War. So he's a Vietnam vet. And I kind of taught myself how to make video started making these like kind of essayistic kind of personal narrative videos doing more like very conceptual work and the feedback was more positive and the 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 professors at that at at northwestern at that time 
they were into story, personal narrative, psychoanalytic kind of interpretation. And, and yeah, I don't know if I was just like an, an impressionable 24 year old at the time or, or, or what, but that's what I spent that last year doing. And when I, at graduation, at that point I was making like a kind of feature length documentary and I was started writing a book about my father and myself in the Vietnam War and these letters that he had written my mom when he was in the war and my kind of reading through these letters and kind of just, yeah, just exploring like what that was like as the son of a Vietnam vet. And after grad school, that's all I did. I was just like writing this book, working a job, like a part-time job, just like trying to survive and stopped making paintings and drawings completely for years. And then I started playing more music and I was just really burnt out mm-hmm. and kind of scarred <laughs> from my from my time at Northwestern and, and grad school. And I had to basically, I had to like mentally like clean myself off, emotionally clean myself off because working with that subject matter of my dad in the Vietnam War, there's a lot of dark material there. There's a lot of really intense stuff that Maybe it makes for great art for some people to look at. Maybe they're interested in that story, but like it's very difficult for the person at the center of it to do. And yeah, even just like thinking about it, talking about it now, it's like a little triggering. It's this is just like a really difficult subject. And it took many years to kind of give myself permission to start making paintings again. And not only that, but abstract paintings that, you know, I, I always wanted to do. And so, yeah, I kind of went all through grad school without any, <laughs> without any conversation about painting at all. Uh, it was all this kind of personal narrative stuff. <laughs> it's amazing, you know, but it, it makes sense because, I mean, again, it seems like you get really honed in on a way of exploring, you know, and it, you're going to ride that wave out and, you know, really kind of push it to its limits and then, and then see what happens next, which is again, you know, it's always interesting. And I I say that, and now I'm self-conscious that that's, you know, like a lot of artists work that way in some ways, but then that, that kind of like research side of it, I think it seems like is something that you're really kind of driven by. What, what was the, the significant work that, you know, kind of came after you kind of came back to exploring painting? When I started doing painting again, I I was just making abstract paintings. Like I, I kind of knew that I'm going to do this. There's going to be some growing pains. I'm going to make a lot of bad paintings. And it's a process that I was familiar with in, in community college. And then in Kansas city, I knew that you just have to get, you have to work your way through that. And so I just started attacking canvases, just making these kind of very gestural organic kind of paintings and not really sure what I was doing and slowly started realizing that there was something geological to the work that I was, you know, like the titles I would give them were all informed by the natural environment. Um, one was moraine, another one was tide pool, and then one I called pile <laughs> and one's pond. And, and then I had a, I had an opportunity to show at the community college that I attended. And it was a one person show and I, and I, and I was trying to think of like what I would do. And I realized that the work that I was making prior to the, these new paintings, the ballpoint pen stuff, that was about accumulation and the oil paintings that I was making, I was trying, you know, like 
without even thinking about it, I was kind of falling back into this like repetitive mark making these kind of intense surfaces, these kind of iridescent reflective surfaces. So I was doing a lot of stuff with like silvers and bronze color paints and stuff like that. And um, so I called it the show Accumulations. Um, and then one of the paintings was informed by Evaporation. And it was just a painting called Evaporation. And then another one was informed by condensation, right? So kind of like looking at the hydrologic cycle and trying to interpret the two, the two ends of that, right? You know, the two ways to think about the cycle. And that was the real kind of like light bulb moment where I started thinking about the natural environment in a different way, where I wasn't like painting a mountain, you know, like, or a lake, or I wasn't thinking about the picturesque. But I wasn't also just like doing a non-objective, like I'm only interested in mark making. You know, I was I was trying to funnel my kind of observation of the natural world and my concern and interest in history, geologic time, physics, you know, those kind of things, and put them into these abstract paintings, kind of you know, back and forth. So that was the the kind of light bulb moment. And then they're kind of forgettable paintings now. I don't think very much of them anymore. But then the real breakthrough was based on that kind of work that I was making, I was given a show at the Edmonton Art Center. And with no idea what I was going to do, I said, well, I'm, you know, I thought about it. And I said, I'm going to do what I did with the condensation and evaporation and the hydrologic cycle. And I'm going to interpret the Great Lakes because here's a subject matter that I live five minutes from the Great Lakes and there's a lot of like history involved. There's, there's like a geologic time involved with the Great Lakes and it's abstract in its own way. There's like the sublime, there's all these associations and, and that was it. You know, so I did one painting for each of the five lakes and, and that started me on my, my journey to interpreting environments in and around the lakes. And you know, relative to like process then, you know, you'd mentioned writing, you know, especially in, in uh, graduate school, you know, is that something then that you're kind of using like, I guess a computer then <laughs> in terms of just kind of like laying out ideas, starting to kind of pour over things that you're thinking about or, you know, different ways of thinking things that you're reading, kind of all pulling that together to start to kind of research. Cause you know, I'm especially interested in how you start working through this process of, you know, getting interested in the Great Lakes and then how that's all kind of coming together, you know, like, and of course I want to talk to you, especially about materials and things like that, but I'm especially interested to, to think about where that starts. Like, you know, is like photography involved at all? Um, and I know I threw about like five questions in there, but, you know, I think it gives you some things to talk about. Photography, not really, you know, because like I said, I'm in the work that I think we're talking about now, it's never really about, you know, it's not necessarily what the what the subject matter looks like. Even the lake paintings, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the lakes. I'm interested in in what what's happening on the surface of the water more than I am, you know, like, is this a pretty picture of the lake? And 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 those in particular was about the way light was interacting with water, with the surface, and the way the environment would affect the color of the water, the color of the, of the lakes where like an example I always give is, you know, like there are certain days where if the wind is just right at the right direction, it'll churn up sand in such a way 
and it'll make the water more opaque. But what that does, if it's a sunny day, is it'll give the light more to reflect off of inside the water, like not just the surface, but in it. And so that's when you'll get these insane kind of brilliant electric kind of blue colored uh, days on the lake. And so, yeah, I was just becoming way more sensitive to just all the different factors that are involved in like what's happening on the water. So these are kind of like observations and memory then in terms of some of these ways that you're kind of noticing these things, you're visiting them all the time. You start making these observations about the way they um, change and shift. And, and then that becomes that thing that you're pulling from visually anyways. Yeah. I mean, and again, like, so the, here's a great example of how the research informs what I'm looking at. So the great lakes right now are um, artificially clear, <laughs> maybe not artificially, but they're abnormally clear because of the invasive quagga and zebra mussels that were accidentally introduced to the lakes in the 80s. And so these are filter feeding uh, organisms and there are trillions of them at the bottom of, the, of at least the lower lakes, countless. I mean, it's if you read some of the, the ecologists who write about the, these things, um, it's hard to exaggerate how many there are in the, in the water. And they're filtering out the kind of microorganisms that are the, the base of the food chain. And that's what gives us these incredibly clear lakes that we all, you know, human beings enjoy swimming in. But it's really terrible if you're a lake trout, you know. And yeah, that affects the color of the lake. So like, you know, if we're here, like, if you know, if you're like a Sunday painter just going out on the beach to paint the pretty waves, you may not be aware of like what you're painting is is abnormal that you know you're living in an environment that you might think is kind of natural um but has been you know deeply scarred by human presence well it's interesting to think about that you know informing them and then obviously too there's you know a lot of material exploration and and i guess that's also like a whole nother can of worms in terms of you know i'm sure that you're kind of shifting that around from different bodies of work that you're working on. And I will just note real quick, if it's not obvious, curtisanthonybosif.com. You can go check out some artwork there. All the bodies of work that we're talking about are there. So you can see more images. Obviously we'll have some on, on studio break. Yeah. Maybe talk to us a little bit about how those materials start filtering into these, these different pieces. Cause I'd imagine that totally changes depending on whatever this new obsession is, if you will. Uh, yes and no. The the real thing is the like the technique and the way you know like the I, we're talking about the lake paintings. You know, the, I kind of in lieu of using a brush, I'm using just a stick, and the stick you can only load with so much paint, and so it's a lot of scratching and scraping and like rolling and you know like you can't make a traditional you know like mark, and so if that's the only way you're applying material to a surface it's not going to take long for that to start to appear more like the surface of a rock, you know, or the surface of something more natural, not man-made. And so that's the real kind of, that's how I get the textures that I do in those lake paintings. And I'm introducing sand in some of them to give another kind of texture. And the sand, of course, I, I wrote, you know, I take from the, the beach just down the street, you know, at Lake Michigan. Um, and then in some of the more recent lake paintings, I'm introducing the shells of dead quagga mussels that wash up onto the shore and plastic garbage detritus that collects on the beaches as well to kind of give the viewer a different texture to look at, but try to interrupt that 
mode with which we're kind of like trained to look at landscape painting as the picturesque, it's kind of beautiful, pure nature. And then you look closer and then you just see this like six pack piece of plastic, you know, and bottle caps and, you know, just like kind of just garbage. And just a reminder that you're living in an environment that again, like I said, is deeply scarred. It's, that's, that's marred by human industrial civilization. And so that's, that's kind of how I introduce some of these different materials into the work. Yeah. And is that something too, then when you have like a new surface, you know, you obviously have like a body of work in mind that you're, you're working through, but is there any kind of like plan at the start of it in terms of like preliminary work, or is it all just like that kind of, you know, reflection of, of what's going on there and adding and adding and, you know, kind of working intuitively. With the lake paintings, I was more paying attention to like tone and atmosphere, color. There's no preliminary anything. I've just kind of like come and attack the painting and just start adding material. That's where the accumulation, you know, comes back into it. The other series of work, which we haven't mentioned yet, but the dune paintings that are informed by the natural dune environments that are you know, in and around the Great Lakes. Prominent examples are Sleeping Bear Dunes, National Lakeshore near Traverse City, and Indiana Dunes National Park, you know, in Indiana. Those paintings, I do take photographs from when I'm kind of in those environments, hiking around, walking around, and then work from those photos. And, and there is some kind of preliminary drawing, just kind of mapping out, you know, like how, how I want the composition to look. And with the more recent Niagara paintings, those are more like the lake paintings in that they're just, I just have a general kind of feeling about the atmosphere, the tone that I'm after. And then I just start working, start adding material. And sometimes the paintings end up in a completely different place than where they started. You know, and that's the, where the real magic is. You know, you, I always say, if you, if you know what you want, and then as an artist, you execute it perfectly, you're not making art, you're making, you know, you're, you're more of an engineer at that point, you're doing something else. And for me, the art making activity is about discovery and transformation. You know, as somebody that's so invested in color myself, and I know that obviously we use colors in different ways and, you know, so does everybody else, but it also strikes me like, again, you know, we, we talked a lot about color field painting, you know, as you talk about that kind of like repetitive mark, it leads me back to some of those paintings that you were making or drawings that you were making way back when, you know, it starts making me think like when you might be in, in a new environment, there might be something like that, you know, like the, in, in the Dune series, that kind of almost like texture that, you know, makes me think of like weeds or hay or something that's like uh, grass that you would associate like in sand dunes. And you start kind of almost thinking of it as like a color field too. And, you know, obviously there's that in the work, but, but, you know, like, is that something that'll kind of just draw you into a new subject too, in terms of kind of like seeing its potential? Cause it sounds like with say the great lake series, you know, you're, you're observing these different, you know, phenomenon. And then I'm assuming then when you go out to the dunes, you're kind of observing something that's kind of, you know, hitting you in a, in a similar way to, to want to make work about it. Yeah. The, the dune paintings, I think initially, I mean, I can remember the day I was, I was just like walking along the beach, like a normal day. And I think it was like late winter, early spring. And all the marum grass was this kind of pale gold color. <laughs> and it's got a slightly iridescentness to it. So it's picking up light in an interesting way. And if you kind of like crop, if you take a picture of it and you crop in, it becomes this really kind of abstract 
gestural painting, you know, in my mind. And, and I was trying to think of like, how could you make each blade of grass a mark? Not something that you have to like slowly delineate with your, you know, with your, you know, your pencil and like carve out each little edge and like, and like the labor it takes to kind of like overlap all these kind of intertwining kind of leaves. And it just occurred to me that, you know, those kind of graceful marks could be executed like, a, like a giant scratch board. So the, that process is very simple. It's just a gold background that kind of dries. And, and then I put a darker ground on top of it. And then just using sticks and spatulas, I, I scrape away the, the dark paint while it's still wet to reveal the gold underneath it. And, and that's how you can get these insane kind of graceful marks that look just like grass kind of blowing in the wind. To my mind, it's very much like making abstract paintings. <laughs> And I sometimes feel like I'm tricking people into thinking that I'm making like a photorealistic painting, that I'm interested in this kind of representation. And, and to a certain extent, I am. But for me, it's really the process is so much more like abstract painting. And so they kind of exist in two worlds, the, those, those pieces. Well, and it's interesting because, again, like you're saying, people would have that take on it, but they might not necessarily think of all the process that that's going involved in it. You know, I guess to ask a maybe silly question, I'm sure you get it all the time, but then, you know, relative to like scale, you know, like how, how long are you working on some of these series? Because I would imagine, you know, some of them, you know, obviously you're taking a little bit of time to kind of figure out how to maybe apply these new tools or, you know, how, which spatula is the, the right one. But, you know, what, what type of labor are we talking about? Because, again, it's, it's so fascinating to me. Like, I, I was uh, interviewing a printmaker, Joshua J. Johnson, who, who I teach with. And, you know, it's just essentially like taking taking plates and then scratching them out every day and then reworking them every day. And that's like a year-long process to arrive at a print. So I'd imagine you might be taking months and months to kind of work these, but I have no idea. Yeah, the the lake paintings and the Niagara paintings – those those take a long time. I'm putting lots and lots of hours in, and the Niagara pieces in particular. Those, some of those, I've take two years, three years even to complete. I can do them much faster now, but as you as you alluded to, when I'm starting a whole new series, I'm like kind of trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm like figuring out a technique that lends itself to the subject matter and to the effect that I'm interested in. You know, I, I very rarely am ever using a brush to do anything like what a typical, mm -hmm. you know, painter would use a brush, you know. But the the dune paintings are very different in that those have to be executed within like one sitting. It's it's very intense where, you know, I'll wake up in the morning, and I'll start working at eight and apply the kind of dark, wet ground. And as long as that's wet, I can make marks into it i can remove the wet material but by 12 hours later i'm still working at you know, like eight o'clock at night that kind of dark brown that's on top of the gold that starts to dry and i can't get as much material off when i'm kind of using the stick using the spatula to make those initial marks and the painting has to be done that layer has to be completed where it's a reductive process That'll dry two or three days later, I'll come back and then I'll use a, a palette knife to do an additive technique, very, very similar to a Bob Ross thing where <laughs> I'll put paint on a, on a blade and just kind of move it very slowly at the right angle to create this, also these very kind of graceful 
kind of marks that are almost relief. You know, they kind of really come off the edge of the painting or, you know, off the surface of the painting. And that adds real depth to the to those pieces. So, yeah, there's a mixture in, in my body of work where it's a lot of time and not as much time. Well, and I would think there's got to be a series that's got to be made with a fan brush then because that was that was Bob's favorite, you know. Right. So. Yeah, the fan brush. I should I should do something like that. I yeah, I have one sitting around here somewhere from many years. Well, you know, to to talk about the most current stuff, again, we've been kind of hinting at it. Maybe tell us a little bit about how this show came together at Oliva Gallery. Again, uh, the show is in the midst of a great fall. You know, it's again still on view through October 7th. Obviously, um I encourage people to go check it out. It was really interesting to to see these in the flesh certainly it just does a totally different thing. And I think you actually talk about this quite a bit uh, in various statements and, and ideas about the work, but you talk about that relationship of the painting and then, then, you know, a human seeing it or, or the human body, you know, in terms of scale, tell us a little about, about this show that you currently have on view. In the midst of a great fall is the culmination of a two, almost three year project where I was kind of set myself the task of interpreting the falls at Niagara and, the idea initially came from uh, the time I was reading um, a book on the Hudson Hudson Valley landscape painters, right? And the author was Elizabeth Kornhauser. And at some point, she says something like, any landscape painter in the 1830s, 1850s, they would all rise to the challenge of interpreting the falls like it was a thing you just had to do if you were a serious landscape painter back then and i thought wow what a great idea what you know so i'm going to embrace that challenge the subject matter was perfect in that the niagara falls are integral to the great Lakes system right they they sit along the niagara river which divides lake erie from lake ontario and the falls themselves act as um an ecological barrier to the upper lakes. So, right, like Atlantic salmon are in Lake Ontario, have been for centuries, but not in Lake Erie, right? Because no, no fish can jump that high, you know, two, almost 200 feet fall. So it's just ecologically, it was, it was really important. It also, the falls are, there's so much about geologic time, just like the Great Lakes are, that it just seemed like a perfect subject matter. And and so I kind of set myself the task of interpreting this thing. You know, just like you were talking about earlier with, and again, maybe kind of there's a crossover with water and landscape, you know, but with the, the Great Lakes series, you're kind of, you know, experiencing the, the phenomena of light hitting, you know, this lake at different times of the weather changing. So how are these kind of made in, in that, I don't know, are there observations? Are there things that you're kind of taking in or is it is it different? And hopefully, again, I, I'm not trying to steal your trade secrets, but, you know, definitely super curious because it's like, you know, like I think I said to you in the in the opening or the artist talk, rather, you know, they they kind of remind me of like, especially the, you know, the one that's popping off everywhere on, on Instagram, but that one that looks like a massive rainbow roll, you know, and I started associating with printmaking. But then when you go up to it, I mean, it's just like, it seems so cavernous and deep, you know, and I'm very cognizant of my hand gestures right now, but yeah, maybe talk a little about that in terms of like how you're, how you're especially making those decisions related to the color and, you know, how that differs, I guess, from some of the other work. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, um, if I have a weakness, 
if there's one fault <laughs> to, to, to when I'm talking about work is that I'm very honest about how I make this stuff. And the work is itself very transparent. I, any idiot can make these things. It's just a matter of like dedicating yourself to, you know, to the repetition involved and the, the, the possible boredom. But I think initially I thought I was going to do some kind of a, a drip, dribbly technique similar to Pat Steer. And so I started experimenting a little bit with that technique and immediately, like very quickly, I realized that that was not capturing the, the force and the velocity and the, just the power of the falls. If you've ever been there, the water just explodes off the escarpment, mixes with the air and the light kind of refracts through the mist. And it's, you know, I needed something that really kind of translated that into the painting, not this kind of dribble down the edge of a, you know, the side of a, of a painting. And I started thinking more and more about my experience at the falls. And it, I, re I realized that half of experiencing the falls is paying attention to what's happening in the air. So even if you're two miles out, you're driving towards the falls, you can see this huge column of mist billowing up into the air. And then when you're actually standing at the precipice, um, looking down into the gorge and the falls, it could be a, a, a sunny, cloudless day and the wind will shift and then you're enveloped in this, this cloud of mist. And if you're like me, you're wearing glasses <laughs> and the water will just collect on your, on your lenses and you need like a windshield wiper. You can't see anything. And then the wind will shift again and the sun will come out and then this just blazing rainbow will appear and and so i yeah i was i was realizing you know like i'm interested in light and texture and atmosphere and that's what i needed to be doing and i don't exactly know how i how it came about but i eventually landed on this technique where i'm just like using i'm using a um what is a chopstick really and raking a very cheap thick kind of stiff nylon bristle brush to kind of flick or project microscopic particles of paint you know, through the air onto these paintings. And that's that's essentially how they're they're made. And then I guess another element that's important is the the paintings, they sit on the floor and I lean them up against the wall. And that way when I'm kind of raking the brush, paint's being applied to the surface. But then there's also this kind of vapor excess paint that falls just directly down. And if the painting's at an angle, all that vapor is landing on the painting as well. And so each kind of rake of the brush is very efficient in that way. Um, and oftentimes the paintings are actually painted upside down. The one you're referring to, Niagara number six, is very apparent in that painting where the color, the intensity, the light is all at the top because it was painted upside down and all that pigment kind of fell and just like accumulated at the bottom of the painting. And that's how... I can get these very graceful columns of pigment and light because gravity, you know, paint always falls straight down. Is that, you know, Isaac <laughs> Newton, it's, uh, you don't have to do a lot of work there. Yeah. And again, it's just, they're just so richly detailed in terms of like the, all the textures and I don't know, it just is so um, inviting to getting close to it. And I guess, how do you get away from these? You know, you're, you know, in terms of like the space that you're working in, because again, you know, my, my work is tiny in comparison, right? So we've got these, you know, paintings that are, you know, 86 inches, 
is is that something that's necessary even because it is so process oriented because it's it's got to be surreal because you can't i would imagine get far enough away from them the way that you can when you've got a a, a you know a gallery <laughs> a gallery set up where you've got these that have all sorts of space i mean like most artists i'd love to have a bigger studio um but i i have always kind of been attracted to big paintings the, the way you approach a big painting with your body, the way you have to move around it, you know, that is the kind of experience that I want to create in this work. And if you're, if you're doing anything with landscape the way I am, or you're thinking about, you know, scale, I think it's hard to approach those subjects, you know, if you're thinking about atmosphere, if you're thinking about light, you know, texture, <laughs> those things, I think you need, you need a big canvas to recreate, to kind of like tap into those phenomena, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe to talk about some of the other ones, um, are, are there other ones that, you know, maybe kind of had different processes or maybe a, another example that you could kind of provide? Because again, obviously there's ones that are, that are, that kind of have that maybe same process in, in the sense that you kind of see those drips or that progression of the, the movement kind of down the surface, but what other kind of variations, I guess, would you describe? Because I mean, again, it's always interesting to hear from you. You're you're the you're the maker, right? They're all made the same way. There's not a whole lot of variation to the technique uh, or the process or, uh, or anything. And, and really, even the materials are are all just it's all just oil paint and linseed oil. Mm -hmm. You know, like to go back to your question about like getting away from them mm -hmm. and like scale. It, I think another thing that's really important is that you know what we're talking about is like countless nearly microscopic kind of incidents of color and, and pigment and light and on huge scale. And so I think that you have these two scales kind of like compressed, kind of smacked into each other, the very, very small and the very large finitude of the, of the kind of dots, you know, these kind of little flecks of paint on these massive scales where if you get close enough to them, they take up your entire vision. And so you're, you're, it's kind of disorienting in that way. Um, it's very similar to, to, to you know, being at the falls. You know, the, the scale is is overwhelming. And I'm trying to think of the, the again. There's not a whole lot of variation. I mean, most of the variation comes in like the color, mm -hmm. and how I want to mess with the light. That's the other thing. Is you know, I I include light as a material because for me it's very much a material or when I'm applying paint, I'm thinking very much about how is light going to behave on this, this part of the, of the painting? How's light going to work on this corner? If you're standing here, you know, how does it work against this more opaque section? And so, you know, I use a lot of iridescent colors and interference paints and kind of metallics and things like that. But I also use traditional, more opaque colors and, you know, finding the right balance with those is how you can really explore, you know, do some really interesting things with light. It's funny because at some point you were talking and recently seeing uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, there's a, a famous scene where uh, I think Cameron is just looking at a, that Seurat painting and it just keeps closing in and closing in. Mm. But the marks seem to get bigger. When I was experiencing yours, they, keep, they seem to keep getting smaller the closer that you're getting <laughs> up to it. So again, it's weird because it like, again, that geological side of it or, you know, that, you know, the idea that it's like this naturalistic thing, it becomes interesting, even though, again, the materials, you know, are, are you know, essentially like paint and, 
you know, it's all layered up, but there's just something interesting to see it at that scale. Um, and then also to see all of that, that texture. And I'd imagine, again, people, people get pretty, pretty excited about them when they, when they get to experience them. And I say experience, cause like, you know, again, but you know, there, there's, there's so much about process and then also like this aspect of you, you know, experiencing these places and, and, and whatnot. But I would imagine again, people kind of just get, get hit by these when they see them in person. Yeah. Um, one of the a very common word people say, you know, like they're, they're stunning. People, somebody today used the word, you know, they're magical. Maybe the best compliment that I've gotten was from this young painter, Jonathan Warsister. He goes to school at the SAIC and, and he said that the paintings were doing a lot. You know, I think that's a terrific compliment. The, everybody wants to make work that is layered and complex and that people can access at many different levels that gives people a lot to think about. They kind of change your the way of, you know, you kind of see the world. You think about the, not only the painting, but the, you know, the environment around you. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. The, the other thing that, that I think is important about the work though, that, you know, the, the reflective aspect, it really activates you as a viewer so that like there are certain moments of the painting that you can't really access unless you move to one side or the other. Unless you get closer, you get further away. Color will shift. Something will appear to fall into shadow while a reflection shimmers in another corner, and then you kind of move around it. Intentionally, I'm using these reflections to move the body around. And I think about it a lot like in music. If you're, you know, you start tapping your toe to a bass line, you know, that's where like music is moving your body. And like I'm trying to make paintings that move your body the same way. And reflection, texture, these kind of like, you know, the the different, you know, scale shifts that happen between the, you know, these kind of microscopic kind of, you know, flecks of paint and the, the kind of size of the paintings themselves. I feel like I, I got it right then a little bit in that I remember, you know, kind of being able to observe, you know, the way that even just colors would kind of shift warmer, cooler slightly, depending on where you're, you know, experiencing them from. And, and you know, I remember, you know, kind of getting super up close. I, again, I'm a, I'm like that at, at an opening or, you know, if I'm going out to see artwork, I want to kind of experience it on that level and kind of get in there and get around it. And so, you know, as you're saying that, it strikes me like, again, that's absolutely huge. Like it's a very important part of it. And it almost makes me think of like the way that you would, again, like, I don't know, I, I think of almost as like monolithic in, in terms of like, the way that you start kind of seeing them or reading them, just as I'm saying that, I just start thinking about like the way that you're going to like gaze into a fire or something like that. Granted, it's like fires are moving and there's, there's all sorts of different things going on. But like, but there's that, that same kind of sensation where you're kind of being like tugged into this thing. And it's just, it, it's an interesting experience to to be in as opposed to then, you know, maybe like we've talked about earlier, some more traditional landscape paintings or something like that, you know, like that, that act of kind of being there and being present is something that's a little bit different for sure. Yeah. That, I, I mean, I, thank you for saying that. I think that's a great way to talk about the work. Um, I recently was listening to a podcast um, with an author whose name I can't remember now, but writes about fire, <laughs> like the history of fire and in, in the human culture. And there's a lot of like writing in the history about fire, about how it's kind of alive. And, you know, like when you look at a flame, you're mesmerized by it because it's, it's alive. It's kind of like moving and it's consuming and it's breathing oxygen, you know? And yeah, I just love thinking about 
you know, the analogy you just made with fire and these paintings, because I've said in the past, you know, I, sometimes I make paintings just because I want something to watch. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, the paintings change over time. They change in different light, different times of day, from different angles. And, and these paintings in particular, you know, we I don't even know. I feel like we kind of glossed over the fact that I'm embracing the ubiquitous rainbow of Niagara Falls in most of the work is this prismatic color spectrum that's kind of the foundation of, of all of them. They're executed differently, they're interpreted differently, but that's that's really kind of the guiding principle behind a lot of the color choices is the, the kind of color, the visible color spectrum. Sure. No, I mean, again, it's, it's, um, it's an experience. So, I mean, in talking about like the way people move around the paintings, what's interesting about these is that sometimes they're best viewed at like an oblique and an oblique angle or a 45 degree angle or something like that. Cause then it, it compresses the angle kind of compresses. You can see the color spectrum a little more clearly. And I, I don't know if this is scientifically true, but I do feel like if your eyes perceive all of the colors in the visible color spectrum at once, they become so much more intense. And it's almost as if like your eyes want to see all the colors at once. And when I was working on this series, not, not long into it, I started like almost hallucinating and seeing <laughs> the color spectrum where it really wasn't like all over the place, like just on a white wall. And if the, if there was a certain shadow, you know, like light would be refracting through the window and I probably wouldn't have noticed it until I started making these paintings. And, you know, I see, I just see it all over the place now. Well, that's gotta be, I didn't ever even thought about that. You probably have some wicked after image going on, you know, you're staring yeah. at something for, for an hour and then you look over and I don't know, the walls must look pretty interesting after that. <laughs> yeah. After image is something I've, I've just very recently started to think a lot about and one of the pieces in the show, the most recent one, Niagara number eight, it's it's a little shallower than the other ones are two inches deep. This one, I think, is like an inch and a, and a quarter or something. But I painted the the edge of the canvas, a kind of sea foam, kind of tealy color. And not only does it create, you know, like a, a halo on the wall, but from an oblique angle, you know, you see that and it's... It's very vibrant against the purple, you know, front-facing part of the canvas. And then as you come to the center of the canvas, you kind of have this after-image effect of that teal vibrating in the in the midst of the middle of the painting, where there's also kind of some amusing interference paints at this point. But I have the same color in very subtle, subtly introduced in the front and. So it's, it not only activates the painting as a three-dimensional object in space, sure, but it for me, it, that after image part, it's what's important is the after that, or it reminds me, <laughs> that three-dimensionality is, is duration, that there's time in three dimensions. So you have to move through three dimensions, time and space. And I just love how the after image like really activates you know, the sides of the painting activate the, the front of the painting. And it's that one has been a real revelation to me. And I have some, some future projects where I'm going to really start to explore some of that. Yeah. So, so again, uh, this, this exhibition in the midst of a great fall is on view again through October 7th, people can go check it out. You know, as we're alluding to, there's other, other projects coming down the road. Obviously you're, you're going to be showing here at Studio Break Gallery with, uh, with Shona McDonald in 2025. So it'll be interesting if um, maybe some of these uh, new tricks that you're pulling 
you know, in terms of the edges start kind of finding their way in. And it'll be really interesting to kind of also break down that process, you know, and especially because I'm imagining there's going to be, there's going to be shifts. There's going to be new things to, to think about and experience, but just remind everybody, what's the, what's the best way to stay up to date with all your, your studio stuff, your paintings, your practice and and writing, especially. That's something that I feel like we have not talked enough about, but follow me on Instagram. That's, that's kind of the only social media platform that I really uh, work on. And it seems almost essential these days for a visual artist. You kind of have to have one. And so right now, since the show's up, I'm, I'm on there a lot. I'm kind of promoting it uh, ruthlessly right now, just because you got to get the work in front of eyeballs. You know, it's the only way that it really lives is, is if people see it. So definitely, you know, follow me on Instagram. My website is maybe the best place to see the see images of the paintings um, if you can't see them in person. And uh, yeah, as, as you mentioned, I'm also a freelance art writer. So I guess around the, the new year, I started doing art criticism and had you know some reviews published in New City and Bridge Magazine. Excellent, excellent. Well, you know, again, it's been a pleasure to to dive into this stuff with you and and learn a lot more about your your practice, your processes, all all the mad scientist kind of stuff, you know. But again, uh, thanks thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. I, I mean, I feel like we've only skinned the surface. I, I feel like we could talk for another two or three hours. It's just you know, there's there's so much and. I know tonight I'll be laying in bed thinking like, why didn't, why didn't I mention this? And I totally forgot that. And yeah. So um, thank you again. I appreciate it. It's a lot, been a lot of fun. Thanks again to Curtis for joining me. Check out his exhibition in the midst of a great fall on view at Oliva gallery through October 7th. You don't want to miss it. And of course, check out more work on a studio break where you can find links to his website, curtisanthonybossif.com. And of course, be sure to follow on Instagram. Likewise, be sure to follow Studio Break so you don't miss out on any opportunities like our 2023 Studio Break professional competition juried by Jeff Stevenson. He'll be selecting five artists to appear on the podcast, solo exhibitions, group exhibitions, and again, super easy to apply. You just go to the competition page on studiobreak.com. You submit a small fee. You email a web portfolio link, Instagram handle, and identify who you are, and it's really that easy. So once again, get those apps in starting October 1st. We'd also love to have you out for our closing for Noah Kashiani's Built Similarly, Saturday, October 7th from 5 to 8 p.m. And of course, be sure to mark on your calendars, circle it up. Mark Mitchell's show, Pale Hay, opens at Studio Break Gallery in West Chicago, October 14th from 6 to 9 p.m. We're excited to have these beautiful mixed media works in the space. And of course, there's going to be some great conversations, a fire, all sorts of festivities. So please come on out October 14th from 6 to 9 p.m. at Studio Break Gallery in West Chicago. As noted earlier, if you are a new listener, be sure to check out the podcast on studiobreak.com. We've got a big archive of episodes. Each of those break down the artist's background, share links to their websites, and of course, they're great studio listening. So, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Of course, you can find us on Apple and Spotify is a great place because you can get that preview image as you're scrolling through. So be sure to subscribe there. And of course, leave those reviews if you like the podcast. It's a great way for other people to find out about the podcast. And again, you earn some karma points. Music for today's episode is by Golden Shadow Band and members of the Decals. 
Golden Shadow includes myself, Ben Cohan, and Brett Beery. If you'd like to see some of Ben's paintings, head on over to Instagram at mbencohanstudio. If you'd like to hear some of the albums and music that Brett has been making, you can find him on Instagram as well at Brett Beery. And we do have an EP out with six songs. It's on Bandcamp, Golden Shadow. Once again, you can find us on Instagram at Golden Shadow Band. If you want to see some of my paintings, you can, of course, head on over to davidlinway.com. You don't have to go too far as it's merged into Studio Break. You can also find me in social media at David Linway. And, of course, Instagram is the best place to say hello. And especially if you enjoyed today's episode with Curtis, give us a shout-out. Give Curtis a shout-out at studio underscore break. It's always great hearing from you, and I enjoy making this podcast for you so that you've got something to listen to in the studio. Keep your mind active. Once again, hope that you enjoyed today's episode. We'll talk to you real soon.